the pink ones. They taste like um, raspberry instant whip or something. I was going to say Angel Delight. I'm getting Angel Delight overtones here. Mm. <laughs> you just joined us. We are tasting beans. Digital Drift, episode 21, recorded Monday the 23rd of March 2014. The Wolverine. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. to say thank you for saving his life all those years ago. There is a time when our enemies knew honor. I wanted to offer you something no one else can. A gift. You have struggled long enough. I can end your eternity. Make you mortal. What they did to me. What I am. Can't be undone. Don't be so sure. I'm not healing like before. His flesh is weak now. Eternity can be a curse. A man can run out of things to live for. That day ain't here yet. We're back to review the sixth X-Men movie, although for the first time it feels like a Wolverine movie, not a Wolverine movie calling itself an X-Men movie, or an X-Men movie calling itself a Wolverine movie. Either way, it's The Wolverine. This film is based loosely on a four-issue miniseries from 1982 written by Chris Claremont and drawn by Frank Miller. Hugh Jackman is famously passionate for the way Wolverine is portrayed and has wanted this story to be told for the longest time, having been disappointed with the way Origins turned out. I think we can all understand how you feel, Hugh. Mm-hmm. All CGI claws and lukewarm X-plot. This was what was originally planned for that movie, but Fox pushed for light to be shed on Weapon X, despite the key points being mostly made clear in X-Men 2. The focus throughout pre-production of The Wolverine was to take this to a more serious, mature place, free of silly mutants and goofy powers. Speaking of which, the idea was supposed to be that Wolverine was the only mutant in the whole film. That was what their their, uh, mission statement was. So no more crappy one-liners and posturing, bloodless comic book fights. Undoubtedly, they lost their way at some point, but it's surprising how much of this film holds true to this initial vision. 
For the longest time, it was Darren Aronofsky in the hot seat, but then just like Batman and Robocop, Aronofsky was ejected and directing was passed to a slightly less creatively controlling director. In this case, James Mangold, known for Johnny Cash biopic Walk the Line, and Crow, Bale, Western, 310 to Yuma. And he must have done something right, because the sequel and third Wolverine picture has just been announced. With him as director. Aha. Despite the fact that this made over $400 million, nobody ever seems to talk about it. So with obvious incoming spoilers in the main analysis, here's the basic plot. Logan is feeling very depressed after X-Men 3. As were we all. Riven with guilt over killing Jean Grey, he has exiled himself to the Canadian wilderness. He is tracked down by Yukio, who represents the Yoshida clan of Japan. She takes him to see a hundred-year-old man he once rescued as a young soldier. This Mr. Yoshida offers the nearly 170-year-old, seemingly immortal and unkillable mutant, something nobody else seems to be able to do. The chance to lead a normal life. Find love grow old with that person, and die in an ordinary fashion. After that, the plot thickens in more ways than one. So we're going to start off with a brief discussion about the structure of the X-Men cinematic universe, because I think with the news that there was going to be a third Wolverine film directed by James Mangold again, and with X-Men Days of Future Past coming out, it's starting to really take the form of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in that you got the Wolverine pictures every couple of years and then you got your X-Men pictures every couple of years. Only, unlike the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there is more of a regularity to the main get-togethers. There are certain threads, shall we say, that are starting to appear that suggests that these two lines are going to be knitted together at some point, or at least that certain people would like that to happen. As in the uh, X-Men cinematic universe and the Marvel cinematic universe combined to one enormous cinematic universe? Yes. That would be brilliant. Let's yep. not speculate on that too much because obviously Indeed. it's it's fan wish fulfillment. And, mm. yeah. But I can't see why Fox wouldn't want that to be the case. Mm. Indeed. Either way, it's actually really admirable what they've, uh, what they've done with maintaining this... Uh, continuity and it's actually starting to resemble if nothing else the star wars saga in terms of the fact that they are not rebooting and they're just maintaining as it goes along so we begin the film with the shadow of nagasaki and uh soldiers seeking a warrior's death that's one of the first things we start off with it's a very strong image and um I said to uh, Lyra, because we were watching that with, this with her, possibly a little bit beyond her, and there were several times she got very scared in this, mainly at the end, um, that this was a warrior's death. And you said, they think it's a warrior's death. And I said, no, 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 this is a warrior's death. From my perspective, at least from what I understand of the warrior culture, it is important to a warrior to die in battle. If you can't die in battle, being able to choose the manner and time of one's own death is actually very important. And that seems to be what is playing on Wolverine throughout this movie. Um, the idea being that seppuku is a noble way to take oneself out of the picture. Mm. I mean, uh, I, I didn't say they think it's a warrior's death. I said they believe it's a warrior's death. I wasn't necessarily implying that they were wrong, mm. um, simply to make the point that this is a very specific perspective on what constitutes a warrior's death. Some people would say that a warrior can only die in battle or can only die in defence of somebody else. 
Um, but I, like I said, I, I wasn't uh, refuting that, um, that in, certainly in their minds it was. I got a little nitpick here. But uh, when you first see Wolverine, he has got him his claws, his bone claws embedded in the wall, and he's hanging from them to be able to see out. But his legs are hanging down like grapefruits. That is an immense strain on healable, but not super strong bone. I don't get why he's not bracing his legs against the walls. That would be sensible, wouldn't it? It's, cr- I mean, it's, it's not like with the adamantium where they literally can't break. The bone claws have broken repeatedly. Mm-hmm. We've could, seen it in X-Men Origins. Yeah, I mean, he could feasibly have had both claws embedded in the same side of the pit with his feet braced against the wall. Or just, you know, as he was doing, you know, uh, arms out embedded in the walls and mm. both feet braced on either side. So he's kind of st- like star jumping it. Mm. But I think they're just trying to show how hard he is by hanging from like like so. I just that that's an incredible strain, mm, indeed. And of course, this whole opening scene answers the age-old question of whether Wolverine could withstand the impact of a nuclear bomb. Indeed, in the uh, um, in the in the films, in the comics, this happened when uh, Nitro exploded on him around about the Civil War time. Uh, that's the um, Marvel Civil War, not the American Civil War. Yes. The bone claws are a big deal. Uh, I think I mentioned this before when uh, Wolverine gets all the adamantium torn out of him. Because up until that point, he was able to theorize that what Weapon X did made him more like an animal, giving him those claws. When the bone claws pop out and he didn't realize they were there and that they had been there all along, that confirmed to him that he was an animal to his core, that he was, he did have this link to a, a wild creature, and that all of this instinct that had been holding up inside him, all they ever did was coat his bones in adamantium. They, in fact, made him more civilized, more of a machine. So, uh, for a long time, in the, in the in the books, fairly shortly after this, in fact, around about the onslaught period, he went absolutely feral and couldn't even speak and became very hairy and wore a bandana. <laughs> Speaking of the hair, true mark of an animal. Speaking of hair, actually, he looked like a ninja turtle with fur. Um, speaking of hair, actually, I've got this as a bullet point later on. How does his hair work? I heard this on a, uh, another podcast. It's it's dead cells. It couldn't regenerate, and if it could, would it not surely regenerate over and over into the same haircut? He's got a shorter haircut in this than he did in Origins. We never see him going, that's really getting long here, and trimming it every day because it keeps growing back to the same length and glossiness. He's not a vampire, ultimately. Um, He doesn't constantly revert to the last hair length that he was before he died um oh yeah that makes also, perfect physical sense well absolutely um also while external hair is dead cells the hair follicle is alive and oh. that would certainly regenerate but basically it would it would sustain him with a constant buzz cut um if all of his hair was blasted off and, and the the live cells regenerated um then he would have very very short hair yeah. um, until it grew out I first asked this question during the Age of Apocalypse when he has much longer, shaggier hair. And I thought, hang on, why doesn't it grow to that length in the comics? It's entirely feasible that his hair grows like a normal person when it's not being blasted off his head and at at the normal rate. I mean, it's generally uh, used as a sort of a a time-lapse shorthand. When he's been away from the world for some time, he gets very long hair and shaggy beard and all the rest of it. Um, The... 
the inexplicable bit is how his healing factor appears to know the difference between this was a nuclear bomb that blasted my hair off, I must grow it back instantly, and no, this was a haircut, that can stay short. <laughs> it would be good if it actually showed him, like, like manually focusing his healing factor and going, bit longer, bit longer. Uh, 70s, nice. Oh my god, now I've got visions of him twisting his ear like one of those Girls World modelling heads to make his hair get longer. <laughs> oh, no, too far, wind it back in again. Girls World head, anyone? <laughs> oh, if it could pop the claws out as well, that'd be fantastic. Trim Logan's sideburns. He's dreamy. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of dreams... um, uh, the- this this first um, sequence, by the way, very impactful, very solemn, very somber, not fucking around. It's It, it evokes uh, the war, which automatically um, makes you think of Eric um, or Captain America. And they don't they don't mess around uh, trying to make Nazis fun or funny or indeed Americans and the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima to actual genuine events that I had to tell Lyra today. OK, this actually happened. There weren't mutants there, but this actually happened. Um, and they don't make light of that at all, and they they even come back to it later. And I'm I'm, I'm glad they hit the tone right on that, and uh, and and show the impact on a single man that this um this had. So then we cut to the dream within a dream where we get to see Gene. I'm going to save what I think this Gene is till the end because it's one of the most complex and interesting sides of this film. Do you have any theories? I was going to say I have several. No, I have a theory with lots of supporting evidence. Okay, well let's but let's do that we'll at the end of the that film. Later. Then. Yeah, okay. Uh, but yeah, they got the dream within a dream, and then we cut to the reality, which is for the longest time doesn't feel like an X Men film at all, and uh, they uh, they go out of their way to make him not even an action hero. This uh, degraded John Rambo style trauma victim. Mm. It, one thing that really impressed me with this section, actually, is, uh, this, and this is what I've kept coming back to um, throughout our reviews of the X-Men films, is this idea of visual storytelling. And Jackman is an absolute fucking master at it oh, yeah. when they let him be, when they give him something to work with um, to be able to put across uh, Logan's tortured core purely through body language and posture and his eyes yeah expression he acts through his eyes in a way that very few actors are able to with that intensity yeah i mean and i think we've we've touched on this before that could be because he's been playing this same role for so long that he has found ways to embody it that an actor in a character for a single film um at least in this genre i mean i'm not questioning that there aren't incredibly skilled actors that um, that can do this and obviously we've already mentioned that um, that mckellen and stewart manage it um but they are much older than jackman and have a much um more professional background if you like this is why i don't get the appeal of things like the expendables they get all of these uh muscle men from the past who couldn't act then can't act now and they get them to throw explosives at each other. And there's loads of big bangs. And then they tote lots of weaponry. And it's like, yeah, okay, this feels like a film from yesterday. We've moved on now. Our action men actually act. They give a performance. that We are, we are light years ahead of now of, of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. And they've really given credit 
they brought action to a new level in terms of the fact that this is technically an action thriller, but it, I mean, compare it to say a fucking Steven Seagal film. Mm. In terms of high profile, it's it's light years ahead. Actually, what I would compare him to most closely is Liam Neeson in The Grey. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a similar uh, uh, level, level of uh, the rela- complicated relationship with one's own death. Mm-hmm. And with, um, with nature, which you simultaneously feel an affinity with, mm. yet is also trying to kill you. Yeah. He relates to the bear, and the bear appears to uh, consider him an equal. It, neither of them go for each other, and they, they seem to be able to inhabit the same forest. There is... Uh, there is a conflict within Wolverine between the civilized man and the wild animal. And it seems like at the beginning here, despite the fact that he has entered into a period of intense melancholy, he is very much at ease with and at peace with his environment, Mm. even if he is riven within a turmoil. And even if he looks like shit, he's surviving seemingly very easily. Mm. Well, he he embodies something which I I know we've said we're not speculating on what's to come. Um, Can't with this. This comes after we've. No, said. no, no. I I know. Um, but this idea that basically Charles represents the idea of uh, mutants and humans uh, working in harmony together, and and you know everything is wonderful, and and cooperation is the way forward for the human race and, and mutant kind. In fact, the human race, because mutants are humans, albeit all of this homo sapiens superior stuff going on. They're humans. They're a more advanced form of human, but they are humans. Um, Eric's theory being that there can never be um, harmonious coexistence. And the only way for mutants to survive is to kill all humans so that they can have the world to themselves. There is a third way. And I actually think that Logan represents that third way, which is you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, and we'll both go our own way in peace. And when he is out in the wilderness, that's when he exhibits that way most purely. But it's not sustainable to people who need... Logan is lucky and very singular in so far... Well, not so much lucky. Logan is special in that he doesn't need anything to survive. He will... A real person out in the wilderness, Christopher McCandles. They'll eat the wrong plant and die. Well, that, no, you say a real person. Somebody who's grown up in civilized environment and has no clue what they're doing. Yeah. I've, we've, I actually seem to remember discussing this fairly recently, the idea of um, not being dependent on any system at all almost doesn't exist in this world. You'd have to go into the wilderness somewhere nobody else owns Craft your own shelter and environment, hunt your own food that no one else is going to tell you you can't hunt, and keep yourself alive without depending on any other system, any any other person. This is almost impossible. In the first world, yes. In the third? I mean, you'd, you'd have to be bare grills to be able to do it. Well, unless you grew up in an area where the systems that the first world are ridiculously intrinsically dependent on just don't exist. So if you've been doing it your entire life already, you can do it. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, but divorcing yourself from those systems and going to go it alone, almost impossible. Mm. 
Well, this is what the whole zombie thing is is about on some level, isn't it? Mm. Is testing ourselves in in the Western first world. Could we survive if all the infrastructure was pulled? And the answer is, in terms of Logan, because he doesn't need anything, not food, not drink, not water, it seems, the answer is yes. Mm. Yeah. But how many other people have that capacity? Zero. So this third way that you speak of in terms of mutant kind doesn't actually work if everyone's off living. Just I'm just going to live for myself and, you know, nobody else bother me. You're talking about the free market economy of Bioshock. No, because free market economies depend on a very, very, very thick layer of uh, uh, workers and oppressed to prop it up. Mm. So, and again, it's it's founded on systems that are already have to be in place to to maintain it. Mm. Yeah. We haven't even got past the hunters there yet. No, we <laughs> haven't. So Steven Seagal walks into a bar. <laughs> Uh, picks a fight with these hunters, which uh, who are held in stark contrast with uh, Wolverine at peace with the uh, natural world, in that they're using illegal arrows and poisons, and they're not taking any responsibility for their kills or their hunts, and uh, he fucks them up. He does indeed. Just to, to jump back slightly, the scene where he... Um uh, executes euthanizes. The right word. euthanizes thank you um, the, the bear the, the fact that he grants it a merciful death that to me almost seemed to be a replay of Jean the, the fact that he did the right thing for her now I know that's debatable from an audience perspective and we've debated it but narratively speaking that's, that's how Logan justifies it this bear yeah, and Gene hurt people he had to take them down absolutely but also it reiterates the idea that it wasn't their fault that they were infected or poisoned or controlled by somebody else yeah so then Yukio shows up to save the day, and I marveled at the fact that she managed to actually uh, end the bar fight without actually hurting anybody, just cutting up stools and beer bottles mm. with yeah. this well, deadly sword. It's this, this is actually, to me, what catfight means. It is rather amusing that people use the term catfight to mean two women futilely scratching at each other. A proper catfight is not actually a fight. It's cats trying to convince the other cat that they are so tough and so hard that to get into a fight with them would be utterly pointless because you're just going to die. It's also not particularly f uh, fun to watch, although it is occasionally funny. They just tend to arch their backs and go... And sound like they're actually really quite scared. And then they make themselves look big. And then they sort of prance around each other. Then one will take a swipe at the other. And then they'll break apart. And that's pretty much it. And they'll go off to their own ends of the street and glare at each other. Yeah. That's what an actual cat fight is. Absolutely, yeah. They're very short if they go on at all. Mostly to do with intimidation. And uh, Yukio is one of my absolute favourite things in this. Uh, uh, when I, I first saw her on the posters, I went, oh, okay, that's interesting. She'll probably just be Miho from um, uh, Sin City. I have now redubbed her as Miho with substance because she has a backstory. She has motivation. She has compassion. She she cares about more, more people outside herself and not just in a, a disjointed, I protect these hookers way that Miho 
display. Well, it's it's not just backstory because it's not it's not just a random narrative that at some point gets dished out as exposition. She has connections. She has relationships. Um, she and Mariko have a history together that that makes them people. It fleshes them out in a way that unconnected stories about the fact that they existed 10 minutes before this film started doesn't do. One of the uh, uh, failings of this film is not enough Yukio. There is a big long period. I would agree, in, uh, yeah. The, the she, she first third that she just goes away. A sizable slice. This sword is hundreds of years old. It was named Danza by the first samurai who used it. Danza means separator in Japanese. The ideal weapon for separating head and limb from body. Like so. I'm packed in back. Uh, one thing Yukio says as they enter into Japan is that the Yoshida clan has one eye on the past and one on the future, which is a brilliant way of summing up the entirety of Japan. Perfectly encapsulated by the Gundam-style Silver Samurai at the end. The fact that Yukio has long red hair. Um, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, you see. And when does she turn up? When he says, I'm sorry, Jean, because he's going to have to break his vow and hurt somebody. And then she turns up behind him. And it's almost like he summoned her. Nice. That works better if they actually did Origin. Yes. It also works better if X-Men 3 wasn't shit. <laughs> so much things. So many things work better if X-Men 3 wasn't shit. But even though X-Men 3 is shit, the fact that the fallout from it created the subtext of this film means that it wasn't for nothing. Mm. Yeah. In fact, I'm just looking down my notes. I actually have much more to say about Yukio. So am I allowed to continue with that or is that going to really mess up your no, no, go for it. current line of argument? Um I mean, one thing that we noted um, when we were watching the film was to do with the... This is a significant change from the original uh, comic story. It's the relationship between Logan and Yukio has a completely different nature. Uh, in the comic book, they are, they're not quite lovers, but it's obvious that Yukio um, is in love with him and that there is a connection between them um, of a sexual if not romantic nature although she'll also happily kill him well yes she um, seems crazy <laughs> like frank miller's other character of electra i think we are yeah frank miller is is not the greatest at illustrating that although it's, obviously this isn't his writing just his drawing speaking um, of by the way i will just go off on a slight tangent and say there are parallels between this and the electra movie which is of all the marvel movies that have been released since blade the so worst. far so far the worst <laughs> on my list i mean the list keeps shifting around and it's Blade Trinity, Elektra, Punisher Warzone at the bottom, and they keep switching places for which is worst. But, um, yeah, the, the Elektra film, as I recall, the hand were in the Elektra film, as well as a poisonous woman. Mm. 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 The, hand being, <laughs> the hand being all those ninjas, by the way. Yes. Okay, carry on. The ninja squad. Um, so yeah, so in the, in the film, the relationship between Logan and Yukio is much more, um, uh, father-daughter. I would say. Um, and the fact that she 
is not only bringing him protection but also knowledge and wisdom means that not only is uh, they do have a father-daughter relationship but that the roles are sometimes reversed she is required to protect him in several scenes throughout the film um and um there's there's something about the way the film is shot which i really really appreciated basically Right, I've said before that it's very important not to just pick on the films that get it horribly, horribly wrong when it comes to uh, portraying female characters and to to make sure that it's highlighted when films get it right. And one thing that was particularly right about the way this film was shot to me was the complete lack of salaciousness in the way that Yukio was filmed. There is a neutrality about the camera positioning, about the, the way the story is told visually that removes all of that incredibly uncomfortable male gaze stuff that Michael Bay is so brilliant at. That leery um, kind of, whoa, look at that. Whoa. Exactly. And, and we've and dressed her like a toy for you boys. You appreciate makes, that? Whoa. Absolutely. And, and frankly just makes me feel really uncomfortable. Um, but, I mean, the way Yukio is dressed when she first turns up, it, it's very sort of... Um, goth schoolgirl almost. She's got the little short skirt and the, you know, thigh high stockings and long boots. It's very punky as well. It, it is very punky and, and, uh, but she, Harajuku. she changes from that to a very traditional style of dress and makes it clear that she chooses to do that because her, um, employer stroke master stroke grandfather figure. Yeah prefers things that way so she's doing that out of deference to him the fact that she has that control over how she portrays herself she is in control of her own image and that is very rare and more of that please and it that comes down to this idea of of women who look like they dress themselves and that to me emphasizes the the power and the strength that this character possesses in a way that um while the sword fighting and, and acrobatics also do that, this does it in a much more um, uh, social way, if that makes sense. Yep, I'm just oh. finishing reading the plot for Electra, such as it is. Mm. Um, she has a, a specific martial arts discipline that uh, affords its practitioners with precognition, as well as the ability to resurrect the dead. Mm. And also, Electra is given the kiss of death by this extremely poisonous woman, Typhoid, who I'm sure Wolverine's tangled with at one point before as well. So there is an overlap to these films. One could say... The Wolverine is, well, Electra itself is riffing on um, the early work of Frank Miller, which tended to be fairly repetitive of the same themes. And all of them, of course, riff on uh, Ronin, uh, another non-Marvel work by Frank Miller. Being referred to as a Ronin is an extremely huge 
is an extremely significant part of uh, Wolverine's story. Because Charles died in X-Men 3, um, he doesn't have a master. He doesn't have a, a, a shogun, somebody to serve. Uh, up until he met Charles, he was wandering the world, not knowing really what he was doing. Up until he met Stryker, he was doing the same. After Stryker, he was wandering the world, not knowing what to do. Logan needs a cause. That's why he fought in all those wars. He believed he was doing the right thing and lending his extraordinary abilities to them. It also um, underlines the idea that there is a distinction between a warrior and a soldier. Yeah. Logan falls very firmly into the former camp. Although Yukio refers to him repeatedly as a soldier throughout this, he is not. A soldier is somebody who has a quote-unquote normal person's perspective on fighting, but does so because it is very, very important for them to do so for a particular cause, whether that be protecting their family or, you know, fighting for their flag or, or something like that. A warrior fights that is what they do that is that's what they are um, and when and they're not fighting they feel like they there's something missing exactly and becoming a soldier is a way in which a warrior can do what they are meant to do but the soldier is not who they are and if you think about the idea of of um striker putting the adamantium onto uh wolverine's bones um, and the fact that the uh, those bones belonged to the animal instinct before Stryker even got hold of him, that adamantium is basically a uniform. So a soldier is a request, a requirement, or an opportunity. To be a warrior is a calling. Yes. A soldier... The way I would look at it, a soldier is something that you can stop being. A warrior is not. Gotcha. Of course, sometimes when you're a soldier, you can't stop being it until the war is over or you've served your time. Well, absolutely. But but the point being, that's not... It's not in your bones. It's not the essence of who you are. Similarly, Wolverine, because he can't die, because he can't uh, have a normal life, he is an exceptional man who covets the lives of the ordinary this carrot that gets dangled in front of him by Yoshida to be able to have a normal life, grow old, work normally, to be able to have a normal life, grow old and die is something that we all have and something that most of us are all terrified of because of the mundanity of it, because of the surety of our own deaths. So from the outside, the alternative will always be preferable. That... See, this was something that struck me as as not quite fitting. Mm -hmm. Um, When Yoshida puts it to Logan that this is something that he's always wanted, I don't see the evidence for that personally. This, to me, was an assumption that Yoshida had reached having monitored Wolverine's actions for the last year or... It could have been 70 years. It could have been a long, long time. Remember that. Okay. So what he's seen is, yes, he's seen him get tired. He's seen him put into situations he doesn't want to be in. He entirely possibly knows more about Wolverine's past than Logan himself is aware of because his memory is still very patchy. But what Yoshida is offering him seems to come from a position of um, 
a man who is very aware that that fate is upon him. And it's something he doesn't want for himself. So it seems a little bit strange that he thinks that this is this great prize to offer Logan. Because surely if, if he truly believes what he's suggesting, then once he has immortality, he will be in that same position himself one day. Yoshida on the bed of nails, when he's making these statements to Logan, seems assured of this, and that's when his character is at its strongest. Had that been retained by the end, the finale would have been more powerful. Yes, absolutely. There are many things about Yoshida's character that do not tie up. Yeah. They really don't. The, The bottom just falls out of them completely. But... What I saw possibly a hint of, which might explain more how the end plays out, is a man who actually resents Logan for saving his life, but not granting him the youth and health that Wolverine has. Well, most people live a good long life, look back on what they've done with their time, and especially if they're Yoshida, he achieved so much and think, I can go to my maker at peace mm. at this point. So it takes why a special he... kind of person to believe, nah, it's not enough. It takes um, Wayland from uh, Prometheus. Yeah. Now, uh, with everything that everybody says about Yoshida throughout this film, what a good person he was, that, that uh, Mariko, who is a, a very... <coughs> Uh, loving and kind and compassionate woman was very like him. Does that sound like the kind of person who would think that way? It's the difference between Alien versus Predator Wayland and Prometheus Wayland. Mm. Yeah. The I need this, I need a good death, and I need to live forever! It's just, it, it doesn't match for me. Um, so then there's the funeral scene and chase sequence. Uh, notably, the claws that Wolverine uses are practical. In fact, apparently they uh, made more claws for Wolverine than they made blades for all the other sorts. So they've dispensed entirely with those horrible-looking CG ones from X-Men Origins. And good, because they've never felt more solid, as they have here, and more usable and more deadly. And this is the first time where he actually draws blood. This is the first time where it actually seems genuinely painful going up against him. Before, there was a lot of sort of Wolverine comes into very sharp, very fast contact with you. You go, and then you drop to the ground without a word. In this, he fucks you up. He does. Although, I did notice they do a lot of the actual penetration just out of shot. Yeah. It's still a PG-13. This was not R-rated. Although they added a few extra frames for the uh, home release, because they were able to. Oh, hence why they were allowed one fuck. <clears throat> you're allowed one fuck in a 12. But you're allowed one fuck in a 12 in uh, in the cinema. First Class was a PG-13. Mm, yeah. Uh, also, I, I noted about the same time as you, they've got a Hawkeye and they've got a Black Widow in this film as well. They do. She you, even has red hair. 
Yeah, Yukio's um, uh, jiu-jitsu and various other spinny-aroundy martial arts techniques uh, combine very swiftly with the poppy-out bow of Harada. Um, th- definitely riffing on the Avengers in that. And not in a bad way. It's a, it, uh, it gave this whole sequence a very pacey, very... Um, uh, you know, chaotic, a lot of people doing a lot of fighting all at once uh, feel, which, considering this is a scaled-down movie, and especially after the in- insane uh, uh, scale laid down by Avengers, which has to be topped each and every time, it was nice to see a really meaty fight at this point. Mm. And it, it does capture the um, sort of the confusion of the fight in the comic. The specific fight that I'm thinking of that this parallels really neatly um, is the Kabuki theatre yeah. performance that they go to. Um, and they, they've basically transposed it from the theatre to a f- the funeral. But it maintains that feeling of... Um, uh, ritual and tradition which is being used to mask these very modern day assassins who are out to um, off people <laughs> you fell apart there I did kind of like the Wolverine mm, yes you, you could say that but one thing that I really liked about the uh, the in the comic the use of the, the Kabuki theatre actually reminded me of, of the idea of in Hamlet using the play to catch the conscience of the king. Nice. Um, and um, I'm, I was very pleased that they didn't lose that completely for the film. Yeah. This, I believe, is a Shintoist shrine, and uh, it, it's beautifully photographed. And there's, uh, it's almost a shame that it, that a fight did actually break out because um, it was nice to see. It felt very grown up and very solemn, which is uh, rare for an X Men film. Mm. In fact, yeah, most of the uh, discourse up to this point has been uh, very like, a lot of grown-ups talking to each other. Very little posturing. Posturing is very big throughout the uh, other X-Men films because you're dealing mostly with teenagers. You've got a lot of people trying to be super hard with each other. And uh, again, X-Men Origins, uh, there's no reason for everyone to posture with each other. And yet, Team X, you've got Wade picking fights with Sabretooth, picking fights with Wolverine, Blob and Gambit and all of them are basically going I'm a badass no I'm a badass I'm a badass but never in that effective way that Yukio does in the bar of just like look guys okay this thing is gonna fuck you up don't mess with it and then any questions and now we're leaving there's a lot less of that sort of um, hosing the decks down with testosterone bullshit that Mm. plagues a lot of the previous X-Men films indeed yeah and again she goes to the funeral in a very attractive but appropriate outfit and flat boots because she knows she's going to be doing some ass kicking before the end of this Hmm. i mean obviously she doesn't but the script writers do (laughs) i think she likes to be prepared indeed Uh, uh, that's why i like her so much there are several attempts actually by um uh, shingen particularly um, to undermine yukio's faith in her friendship with mariko Mm -hmm. um her when she's telling Logan about how she came to live with the Yoshidas, um, he throws in a comment about, so they just picked you up and brought you home. And that, to me, seemed to echo um, the comments about Raven being a pet in uh, X-Men First Class. Um, and Shingen goes on with that later on in the film and, and basically says to her that um, that she's a toy doll that her owner has outgrown. Um I don't think they ever really build on that 
fully in this, but it does give a lot of um, potential self-doubt to explore if they make Yukio a stronger character in any future films. It was also refreshing to see two female characters both interacting with the hero, both having their own stuff going on, and then at the end, neither of them goes, I was being deceptive all along. You can't trust the woman. <clears throat> no, there was another woman who everyone knew was being deceptive from the very first fucking moments, and uh, yeah, we'll deal with her in a bit. It was refreshing that Yukio and Mariko were both being straight shooters the whole way through, both being honest the whole way through, cared about each other, neither of them died, and at the end, it was about their relationship and not just Wolverine. Mm. And also the fact that they are um, very different in character and have obviously had very different perspectives on their lives growing up, but that doesn't necessarily mean that either of them fall into particularly stereotypical camps. And a positive sisterly relationship in a, a mainstream action film is hen's teeth, frankly. <laughs> Exceptionally rare. Oh, one more thing. James Mangold uh, mentioned that uh, the that Logan's extremely long life and his coveting of uh, other people's uh, mundane short existences uh, actually uh, reminded him of Asimov's The Bicentennial Man, which I watched the other day just for some reference points and is horrible syrupy crap filled with that moist-eyed camera hog Robin Williams, most of the time pretty bolted down and acting as a robot, but every so often going, I can tell jokes like this, and... <laughs> It's an awful film, but I still get the reference points and the relative... I understand the story of how the Bicentennial Man works and, and uh, from what Asimov originally wrote, what he was going for. And there are parallels. He wants to be seen as a man and he wants to be able to lead a simple life. Japan as a fantasy environment, this was totally intentional. The way it's portrayed, it's almost like they've gone to the future or some parallel world. That's what Japan's actually like. They didn't have to create these massive sets. They didn't have to go, look, imagine this. It's real and it's right there. It's just different enough from your average American Western street being carved up by aliens that it is arresting and it is... Uh, fairly fascinating to see it flash past during a, a chase sequence that that's of course to a, uh, a european and or american audience i'm yeah, pretty sure anybody japanese would go oh, well yeah we kind of know this <laughs> yeah, the japanese kids are watching it going oh, it's interesting to see wolverine finally here <laughs> Indeed, yeah but no it, it did um it, it actually reminded me a little bit of um the way uh career is portrayed in um cloud atlas with all the, the very tall buildings and, and lights that all look slightly strange. But yeah, the uh, the bullet train uh, and the, the crazy fantasy hotel kind of lend weight to this almost like Fifth Element style, imagine if the world was actually like this scenario where it's like, eh, just jump on a plane, pay a chunk of cash, and you can experience this crazy other world as resident digital cowboy Paul Shotton just did. 
Uh, the bullet train sequence in particular is is uh, very arresting. It's uh, it's rare that a train sequence will make me do anything other than snooze because there have been so many. But the sense of speed in this and the sense of impact when these guys go flying off and smacking into signs and the fact that it's in the daytime and the fact that it's in a city and the fact that it feels like it's an actual object in motion rather than a set. Mm. Yeah. One thing that I'd say about the um, all of the fight scenes, frankly, or at least most of them in this, is that uh, there are editing techniques that are used um, to give you like the the blurs to indicate confusion and when he's been knocked on the head or something and then um the that technique of a, a tiny bit of slow-mo and then a very short cut to kind of give the action a little bit more emphasis yeah um those were some of the more positive things i thought about um x-men origins wolverine um and i was very pleased to see that they had carried at least a little bit of that over. Um, I would say that the, it does still suffer from um, a pacing that relies relies a little bit too much on this kind of plot, fight, plot sandwich, but at least they've got the meat and the bread the right way round. There's more <laughs> plot than fight. It's not, you know, fight, fight, teeny bit of exposition, fight, fight, fight. Hang on a second. Which is the... Surely if they got the plot and they fight the right way around, then the sandwich would be meat with bread in the middle, because the yes. plot is surely the meat. Which is, of course, the best way to do a sandwich. Bear in mind, a sandwich for me is is meat, 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 because I can't have the bread part. This metaphor's going all over the place. It is a bit, yeah. Just chuck it all in a blender. <laughs> I, I will say that by, by the end of the film, I was going, no, not more action, talk more. I actually want to see these character arcs play out on a dramatic thriller level far more than I want to see people fight. We've seen people fight. It's been done. We Do know the book. outcome of this. Wolverine hits people. They and go lives. get up. That's the end of it, really. Yeah. I want to see that, that when Wolverine lives, what changes about him. And it, ultimately, it, sometimes fighting gets in the way of that. Yeah. Because even when they've got this thing about, you know, oh, he's poisoned, so he's not going to heal. So you'll want to know the outcome of this fight because he might die. Well, let's see. The film's 45 minutes in. I don't think he's going to die. Having said that, him... Losing the that ability makes him deficient at what he's. It he makes him no longer the best he is at what he does. <laughs> By the way, when he said that line in X Men Origins Wolverine, we both collectively groaned. Oh god! Because it is an awful line to have to he chew. He says it so many times in the comics of yeah. this story, Trump. over and over again. The beginning of every issue is a recap of "I'm the best I am at what I do, and what I do isn't very nice." If they didn't want me to cut them, they shouldn't have given me claws. <laughs> My bones are laced with adamantium, and being a mutant, I have a healing factor that means that blah 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 blah. You've just wasted four pages on this. I'm also Canadian, and I'm. Five foot two. <laughs> just, just take all of those segments out. Make them a special at the end. People who don't know Wolverine's backstory can get that special and just read over and over again. But that's what you were saying. That's what you were saying. But back in the, those days, in '82, they couldn't rely on people having been, been able to read the previous issue no, because if you didn't. weren't there and getting it off the stand, you might not even a be able to read it or b be able to even get hold of it, even if you wanted it. 
So they had back to in those days. And so they had to pretty much had, recap it. Yeah, and even if you had, that was a month ago, and you might have thrown it out by now. Or well, maybe parents. several months. I mean, but you know, out in the sticks, if you were in, say, Iowa, if you were in Des Moines, Iowa, and you got issue three of Wolverine, it might be months after that finally came out. You might not get issue four at all. So basically they had to make each issue kind of self-contained. It's like, will Wolverine make it? You better hope he does because you might never find out. <laughs> but uh, but now obviously it's, you know, if you want issue, the, the, the previous issue, you just jump on Comixology and buy the previous issue. It's that easy. I remember I never got hold of issue six of Generation X and every time I went into a comic shop throughout the 90s, I'd go straight to the X-Men section, find the Generation X section and go, <gasps> one, two, three, well never one or two because they're always up on the uh, wall, but two, three, Four, five, gah, seven! <sighs> and they never got in six because you don't get them in. Once you, you basically, someone either brings them in and sells their comic collection or you don't get it in. It's that simple. Um, so that meant that Chris Claremont had to say everything, every issue. Now these days they tend to have like a little page at the beginning updating you on who the character is and previously on Spider-Man, which is how it should be done. Because it needs to be, it needs to feel like an episode of a TV show. Mariko's burden of power parallels Wolverine's in the fact that she didn't ask for it and she got it anyway and she doesn't quite know what to do with it. I do like the fact that the adaptations that they've made to Mariko's character are, at first they seem more so from the comic to the film. There seems to be a significant change, but as her arc progresses you can kind of see her growing into this noble young woman who is she pretty much is all the way through in the comics yeah um she starts out as um well i mean much of the focus at the beginning is is how devastated she is by losing her grandfather um and then when they escape together she kind of morphs into this she's obviously deeply deeply depressed and slightly traumatized but she does come across as a little bit spoiled and a little bit sulky and you know somebody to whom blossoming into that more interesting and and deeper character is quite far off yeah um but the the change that i i noticed specifically and it, it does kind of come in two parts the before they sleep together and after they sleep together. Um, but she, she does have an understanding of how to, uh, 
relate to Logan. Although they are so different, she knows when it's the right time to persist in asking him who's Jean. She doesn't just let it drop. She's not scared of him when he wakes up and pulls the claws out. Yeah. Even though she has every right to be at that point. She just, the, the look on her face is one of complete trust, but at the same time, it's, it's not, it's not like blind, childlike faith. It's almost just like there's an air of serenity about her in that moment. Um, and one thing that that segment really reminded me of, there's a, um, a Japanese, uh, folk tale about a woman who's, um, husband comes back from the war he's massively traumatized and he's incredibly angry and he he won't she you know she brings him food and he throws it about all over the place he won't live in the house because he's got so used to sleeping outside Um, she can't connect with him in the way that she did before he went away and she seeks help and and to to sort of try and find out how she can um, bring him back to how he was before and he's basically given this series of tasks that involves going up um, a very remote mountain um, and dealing with various spirits and finding a bear and not exactly taming the bear but but getting something from the bear and then she comes back down again and the wise woman or, or wise man or whoever it is who's, who's sent her on these tasks basically says to her those skills that you learned while you were going up the mountain and and dealing with the spirits and and dealing with the bear go home and apply those to your husband and all will be well and that just really seemed to fit for how they connect with each other that he is this wild bear and she is using bear taming skills (laughs) to kind of connect with him and bring him back to who he is supposed to be and that, without using the words exactly, summed up for me one of the best uh, panels in the comic, which is when Logan says that it's not about giving in to the animal and he may never be able to conquer that side of himself and maybe conquering it is not the point, but trying is the point. And Mariko makes him want to try. Yeah, that that was part of the comic that really took you aback in a good mm. way. Absolutely. Well, just in the sense that, my God, Chris Claremont wrote this. It's incredibly <laughs> insightful and very well phrased. Yeah. And I'm used to no quarter is given and none taken. No, Which no was quarter in there is asked well. and none taken. Yeah. Which was in there as well. Mm. Oh, also, major respect to uh, Ryla Fukushima, who played uh, Yukio. She had never acted or done any stunts before this. I don't know how she got hired. What, not at all? Because she looks awfully familiar. Well, she was in Karma, a very twisted love story, which is a short film. So she had never acted in a big film before. And that's it. This was like her first gig as a film. Neither had Tao Okamoto, she had, uh, uh, who plays Mariko. She was uh, a first-timer as well. And uh, Svetlana Kochinkova, who played Viper, also hadn't acted before. Or since. Or during. Although I swear that woman is a clone of Kim Cattrall. No, actually, she had acted before. She had acted in loads of stuff. But this is her first uh, English-language film. Ah, right. Yeah. Uh, oh, and one more thing. You know, I uh, mentioned that... Um, Shingen reminded me of uh, Kaneda from Sunshine. 
Yes. He's Canadian from Sunshine. Well, of course he is. I, Hi- I didn't Hiroyuki hear the, Sanada. I didn't hear the reminded me of, actually. I thought you were telling me it was Canada from Sunshine. <laughs> I was like, yes, I know. Of course. Uh, yeah, now that was him. Um, the rewarding exhaustion of a day's work. This is a lovely little moment where, after chopping some wood, Wolverine gets knackered, something he hasn't been before. Um, this struck me as something that he would re- very rarely feel, and if... Because he never gets exhausted and always heals from everything he goes through, he must be almost numb in terms of the fact that his that what he does doesn't it causes him pain, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like experience. It can't even scar him. It's his he knows tired. He knows exhaustion, but it is not a good exhaustion. It's not a satisfied exhaustion. It's a, it's a mental there's exhaustion. More. Exactly. Yeah. There's always more. There's always another day. There's always another healing. There's always another injury. Everything is, is weight on him. And yeah, he, he'd never, I don't think he's, he's been able to connect that sense of, uh, feeling that you've done a good job for somebody. With the possible exception of when he was working, as a lumberjack. Lumberjack. And, and he was okay. Yeah. But but this would... He slept all night and he worked all day. <laughs> hmm. And we won't discuss the further. Um, but the, the fact that the last time he was doing this was a time when he was with somebody that he loved and he was happy and he was away from people who were pursuing him. Living as normal a life as he ever has done. Absolutely. So there's got to be a a slight glow of remembrance in that for him. Yeah. Even if he doesn't remember it consciously. Although Gene mentions uh, as far back as that, and we'll talk about Gene in a bit, but that implies that his memories are returning, albeit in fragments. Yes. Yeah. Stupid adamantium bullet. Anyway. A word here, because it was this sequence that really made me think, oh, God, yes. Uh, The cinematography, um, it's when he finds the uh, cover for the the well that he was down. uh, And it's absolutely dazzling at times in this. It's maybe the best shot of the X-Men films, maybe even over... uh, First class. And that's saying something. There is a quiet and very powerful beauty in some of the shots in this. Yeah. Um, that I don't think first class quite has because it first class is telling a story in a different way. And that is focused very much on the people, not on the surroundings. Interesting. Ross Emery, the cinematographer, also known for the Matrix films. Ooh. Which were superbly photographed Mm. also superman returns which also has some very dazzling moments yeah Uh, and uh, also the score by uh is it marco bel yeah marco beltrami who also did hellboy mood music similar i suppose to in fact most similar to a christopher nolan film it's got sort of a lot of kind of um like the prestige starring hugh jackman Bear with me, I'll just check if Marco Beltrami also did Electra. Ugh, he also did Terminator 3. And, and Blade 2. Yeah. And Die Hard 4 and I, Robot. Yeah. Yeah. And World War Z. Uh. And Stab 6, colon, Ghostface Returns. Pardon? Serious. <laughs> and 310 to Yuma. 
Anyway, at least he did uh, Hellboy, which is uh, a fantastic, sort of moody, memorable uh, bit of music. Fortunately, he did not score Electra. Uh, an abundance of harmonica. Did you catch that? That at the beginning, which makes it feel like the Prestige, but with a bit of a sort of lonesome cowboy feel to it. Bit right. of um, Canadian wilderness in there. But yeah, the cinematography uh, was particularly striking at the point where uh, Logan was thinking about finding peace after war. Uh, the idea being that uh, this war-torn place that was ruined by the bombs has healed like him and appears to be at peace but he wonders to himself whether he can or is he simply looking for another war mm-hmm. though this bit with the sword did annoy me because it's a lovely beautiful scene this is how you hold a sword two hands and this is how you hold a sword wrong <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> like those hands like close together nah you put the your lower hand at the very bottom of the sword. Katanas are, are made with long handles for this exact purpose, so that you've got strength in your right hand, control in your left. But doesn't matter. I suppose it sort of paid off during the Silver Samurai section. <sighs> and uh, the the story of the Kazuri is, is a nice sort of parallel to the uh, the legend of the Wolverine from X Men Origins Wolverine. Mm. Uh, only uh, just making him seem like a mythical creature. It works. Perfectly, actually. If he's someone, he's someone that you can encounter as a child, and then encounter as an old man, and he won't have changed. That makes him mythical. That makes him a creature of legend. Mm. That makes and him this outcast, wandering monster. And of course, he's already been referred to as a uh, a folklore Wolverine in another culture, so that emphasis on him being the same being in yeah. different uh, different cultural takes gives weight to his um, eternal feel. Like how vampires turn up in different ways in different cultures. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, I love the idea of him being met down a well. That just adds to an uh, extra bit of almost like hellboyish mysticism. Extra Japanese folklore because wells are where goblins dwell. And uh, then uh, shortly afterwards, there is another kidnapping of Mariko, and uh, Wolverine becomes the man on fire. So he's, he's walking away from the uh, um, the escaping car, and he's just got that kind of that loping cowboy gait, that kind of the the hard-boiled um, anti-hero from a film noir uh, going on, and uh, just uh, still the film is going very strong at this point. The, the ante just got upped. Mariko's just been snatched. He's going to get her back. That gives you a very clear goal. This is uh, the, the, the film is gathering speed at this point. And what better to do with your hero once he's starting to look at his most cool and most hard and most focused by showing him in contrast with a buffoon in red underpants? 
the other man, the other uh, man who, uh, well, one of the two other men uh, who compete for Mariko's affections or indeed hand in marriage. Oh, speaking of which, in the comic, he actually marries Noriko at the Noriko. He actually marries Mariko at the end of this. He sends the X Men. Uh, I'm going to get married. Bring the beer. <laughs> and of course, it's comics, so uh, you know, place your bets on whether that particular relationship lasted for a particularly long amount of time. Which is another reason why I was so happy that Mar- uh, Mariko survived to the end, and he didn't have to marry her. <laughs> get on. Not you. I am the Minister of Justice. Do you have any idea what I could do to you? Really? You mean to try and talk tough standing there in your red underwear? You have ten words. Ten words to explain to me why you would want your fiancé killed by the Yakuza. You don't have the faintest idea what's going on. How many words was that? Nine. Nine. You have one word left. Really? Mariko would have... Never come through with the wedding. She never took to me. Oh, really? Class act like you. Wait, wait! No! You wanted the truth if I go to your car! I didn't like it. How did you know there's a pole down there? I didn't. So yeah, Noboro, the imbecilic minister of justice in his pants... Kind of a there, there is a straightforward uh, way of, of saying uh, uh, yeah there is a way of being a stand-up guy. This isn't it, which is always good to put in uh, movies aimed at men because it reminds them not to be dicks. Yes. Um, how useful is Yukio's gift? Being able to see people that she loves die. To that, I can only respond that mutant powers are not always useful. Would you say she's actually a mutant? Is that confirmed? Um, it's not, but since there is, this is something that she's obviously had from a very young age, unless it turns out that this is something that was granted to her by an alien before she was old enough to remember, then I would say it's, it's a mutation. If she was born with it and it's not the result of cosmic radiation or being bitten by a... Radioactive precog. Yeah. <laughs> um, then it's a, it's a mutant power. I mean, we've, we have established that there are um, many mutant abilities that have uh, psychic components to them. Mm. Um, and I would say that you, you could argue that this is an, uh, an extension of um, some form of, of telepathy. Um, well, put it like this. In the regular Marvel Universe, it doesn't have to be a mutant power. In the X-Men cinematic universe, it pretty much does. There's no crimson gem of Citarac. Well, exactly. That's that's what I mean. There's no suggestion that this the source of this is something outside herself, and yeah. that suggests mutation. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, then we get Shingen's madness and uh, Wolverine's self-surgery, which is, gr- for a PG-13, pretty grim. But again, most of it is just below the screen. Why does Shingen get up after being poisoned, put on samurai armor, and attack them? Right, now... Is he being controlled? Was he doing that off his own back? Here's the thing, you said... Because at this point, the the... the the film starts to get a bit shaky. It just about holds up. But then after this, it turns to bollocks. Yeah. You you said at the time that he was being controlled by Madame Hydra. I think I, I was just telling Lyra that because I couldn't think of any other reason, any other good reason, reason why. Yeah. I don't think it's that simple. I think there are elements of that to it. However, 
part of what Madame Hydra does seemed to me... To oh, her name is simply Viper in this film, but she's Madame Hydra from the Avengers comics, folks. She should have green oh, hair, yeah. but she's one of the few characters in the X-Men films who actually gets to wear her own costume, that green number. That's hers. Well, okay, so part of what Viper does seemed to me to be to... Um, I mean, she's very explicit about the fact that she works with poisons, that she uh-huh. is immune to poisons, mm-hmm. and she even has this slightly what line of uh, that she's even immune to the, to the poison, poison that of is man. man himself. So she's basically saying she's pussy galore at this point. Oh, she is as well. You're not um, detail, I'm immune. Indeed. So at least Wolverine doesn't cure her. Thank Christ by for that. throwing her down in the hay and shagging her. Shagging the lesbian out of her. Part of what she seems to do, to me, is work with the metaphorical poisons that are already within men specifically, but people okay. generally. So Shinga was already angry and resented Wolverine. Exactly. So. And so mm. I, I think, because this was part of my big question, and I said I had a theory as to what could explain why the end goes the way it does, if not justify it. It's not total bollocks, but there is a, a high mostly bollock count. Bollocks. It mostly is bollocks. Especially if, like I said before, if you take what The bollockometer buries the needle. It does a bit. If you take what people have been saying about you that he was a good, kind man, that he, no, you know... Did they say kind? Um, Maybe just good man? They don't say it explicitly, but like... They, they don't they, say it that it wasn't true. Well, they just generally seem to imply that he was a better person than Shingen. He loves puppies and hates mean things. Indeed. Um, but I suspect that, like I said, there was this seed of resentment that although... Uh, Wolverine had saved his life. He hadn't been able to save him completely. He's he dies of cancer. The fact that he has an oncologist, you could interpret that the Nagasaki bomb killed him. It just took seventy years to do it. Okay. Right. There is going to be within that a seed of of anger and frustration that Viper could have drawn to the surface and manipulated in order to make him behave in a way that most people would have interpreted as being wildly out of character. I still think it goes way beyond that being a satisfactory explanation, but it does at least explain why somebody who Mariko loved, who was um, uh, the kind of person who would see a poor street orphan and want to take her home and look after her, would eventually go, do you know what? Big suit of armour chopping people's fingers off. That's the way I want to go. Yeah. Fingers? Claws. Claws. Um, But likewise, she uses the core of how Shingen feels anyway, I think, and then um, exacerbates it and makes him want to act on that even more. I mean, That's he already really going to exacerbate things. He already tried to kill Mariko before she stabbed him with the pen. So yeah. I, it's—I'm not sure how far she can actually develop it. Motivations aside, this is actually a really great tense scene because when you first see it, 
I, at least, was very, very worried about Yukio because she is a character who could have died right there and in nine out of ten other action movies would have done, yeah. but long, it would have survived long enough for Logan to, uh, to, to, to hold her as the camera panned up and he went, damn you, Salazar! Yes, indeed. But she doesn't and she holds her own at, to the point where Wolverine is able to take over which is then followed by a really uh, brutal claw versus samurai sword fight. And this is how I actually would have ended the movie. Maybe with a bit more talking after, during and around. Mm. But this actually serves as a really good finale, especially since you're worried about Yukio. And it's in keeping with everything that's happened so far. So really, if I was going to do a director's cut, an outside armchair director's cut of this, I'd go like clang and somehow get Mariko to turn up and go, thanks, Logan. <laughs> well, just, it's easy. Just jump from there to the scene at the airport. Yeah. She saves him. And it's not just he's saving the damsel in distress. Mariko and Yukio actually save Logan more than he saves them. So what did the actual robot spider do? Because how could that inhibit Logan's mutant power? I wondered about that. Because I think robot spider and alien DNA are about the same. Yeah. Or black and goo. This Or Magneto's machines. Or Magneto can get his powers back because he's Magneto. Yeah, or um, unmutantifying serum. How does that work then? Oh, just inject it in your leg, you'll be fine. Yeah. yeah, but how does it work? Well, we sucked um, out we sucked out Leech's juice, and then we squirt that in you. Yeah, it makes no sense. <clears throat> so yeah, there's a robot spider on Wolverine's heart. This is where the bollockification begins to happen. Mm-hmm. But there's a bit of an overlap with this final fight. Where well, because that scene this, looks this really good. Yeah. While he's extracting the robot spider from his heart, you're too busy going, Oh my no, God, is he going to be able to do it? To actually go, hang on a minute. It what the... is that? Why does he need to do it? It was the robot spider with the shifty <laughs> eyes all along. And it was... When did they insert that? Because how could they like get it in him, so to speak? Well, I suppose it would have had to have been after Viper buggered his healing factor but there's no actual set moment when that must have happened No. unless she slips it in with a forefinger after she kisses him maybe and then it found his heart oh yeah doesn't he have a dream where she comes into his room and kisses him and she kind of put it down his throat how it would get from his throat to his his men are not tubes (laughs) (laughs) with a mouth at one end and a heart at the other I'm not saying it would have been acceptable. I'm just saying that could be what they were trying to imply. So, yeah, Crazy Robot Spider is the beginning of the end for the Wolverine. It is a bit, yes. What then follows is 30 minutes, 30 minutes of superfluous exposition, ninjas, fighting, stabbing, shooting arrows, more ninjas, girl fights, the elevator, giant Iron Man suit big crazy stupid set that doesn't actually fit with the rest of the film gloating ninjas and some wolverine you said ninjas twice i know there were a lot there's a lot of ninjas (laughs) they're only there 
to subdue Wolverine. They, they, they throw loads of harpoons into him. And it's like, well, don't go away, guys. We've got a feeling this guy might break out. We might need to keep some ninjas handy. No, 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 no. The hand work on an hourly basis. You keep them around. I've got to pay them overtime, for God's sake. Back you go. Back to your, your hand pads. Also, who's living in that Japanese feudal village? It's like, well, don't go outside. There's some hand ninjas, Fader. <laughs> Maybe they work on a call-out fee basis. If they all retreat to base, then they have to charge again when they come out again. Okay, now all the X-Men films, bar first class, have buried the bollocation needle for the end sequence. X-Men 1 turns to crap as soon as they hit Liberty Island. Up until that point, it's going pretty well. Uh, X-Men 2 is actually pretty good for most of that whole sequence, but then Magneto tries to kill the entire world, and I can still see no justification for that, and I've been searching around since we did that show, and a lot of people were like, well, yeah, this is... Um, I heard quite a good argument, which is that Stryker scared him so much with the uh, with his plan that Eric, as a defense mechanism, becomes this worst possible villain of all. But in doing so, that also tarnishes an otherwise um, fascinating Shades of Grey um, antagonist. And also, no one ever seems to mention how terrifying that x-men in the white house bit is x-men 3 was fucked from the beginning but it's really fucked at the ending x-men origins wolverine isn't absolutely broke ass bad until they get to three mile island and then it is and then they break out the deadpool and this is really good up until the point when they go to this laboratory with the stock tech silver samurai and it's not in terms of the drop-off, it's probably a little shallower than the others. It's less of a sort of, oh, for fuck's sake moment. Like, like I said, um, X-Men 1, just there's a huge slump. X-Men 2 puts a great big spike in the X-Men mythology, which no one else seems to acknowledge. X-Men 3... I suppose it's less of a plummet downwards because it's always been, it's been plummeting anyway. It's more of a shallow decline than a, a, drop, a sharp spike, but it ends in far less powerful ways than it began and persisted. Um, and a lot of this comes down to Madame Hydra, or Viper, and who was actually pretty threatening when she wasn't speaking earlier in the movie. Now, you could say, oh, it's not her fault, she's not an English-speaking actress. She's given the worst lines, lines which like nobody could make that sound good. There's one exception to that. I do quite like the bit where, um, is it Shingen asks who she is? Yeah. And she says, nihilist, capitalist, viper. <laughs> I can't, I can't like that bit because capitalist reminds me of Mac in Indy 4 saying, what can I say, Indy? I'm a capitalist and I love gold, Indy. There is that. <laughs> there is that but it, it did oh, make me I'm a nihilist I just thought she was going to say oh that sounds exhausting <laughs> and then yes. Stark turns up and goes yeah sounds exhausting she's going to come back and pee on his rug um, she peed on the rug man <laughs> but no because it, it just hmm. that rug really tied the room together <laughs> it, it made me think about the whole um because obviously she has this connection with Hydra, the organisation. Well, not in this, but yeah, we can read that into it. But carry yeah, on. and they are an analogue for the Nazis. 
mm-hmm. um, and she could be perceived as kind of where the Nazis might have gone had their ideology <laughs> continued. Catching Wolverine on their iPhones and filming him during the funeral scene. That's what the Nazis would do in the modern day. Yeah, all right. That's, that's What's that for? Is she just getting it because she's just going to put it on the Facebook? Well, I, I thought... Check this out, lols. There's got to be like a gun hidden in the camera or something like that. But no, she genuinely just seems to be trying to catch him for posterity. But that's what... That, she's really creepy at that point. I thought she was crazy. And then she, um, you know, she... She kisses and, and, and slaughters multiple men, but doesn't really talk much. And she's very mysterious to begin with. When she, she, you know that whole, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than open your, than speak and remove Removal all doubts. That. Yeah. When you say you thought Again, she don't was... really want to lay this all on top of the actress. The no. screenwriter really has to bear this burden. They decided to make Viper like that. And ultimately, she comes off like Poison Ivy in the Schumacher Batman. And that is that is literal box office poison. That is cinematic awful. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of is. You can't evoke Poison Ivy unless you are doing... I mean, Batman and Robin is hilarious in that it's terrible, but at the same time when you're watching it, it's exhausting. So mm-hmm. it's almost like to invoke that, you're already walking on thin ice. Oh, God, I have to. <laughs> well, I have to. Right. I was invoking it. Question. Yes. When you say uh, that you thought she was crazy, do you mean that she appeared to be almost completely devoid of any perceivable motivation? Like a, a sociopath. See, I don't think she even has that. that that's, I mean... Uh, this is, see, this is, this is the thing that frustrates me greatly about crazy, in inverted commas, in movies. Ah. Because what it normally comes down to is, screenwriter could not be asked to give character any motivation. Proper motivation, yeah. Yeah. Aye. But if I was going to be honest, I would simply say, to make the Wolverine better, remove the Viper character, or at least have her never speak. If she never speaks... And then, then the closest you might get to is Deathstrike in X2. Mm. She really, like always that little smile and that, oh my God, what she's, she's lethal. She really isn't necessary yeah. unless you're going to make it clear that she's pulling all the strings for the shitstorm at the end. And if you don't have the shitstorm at the end, you don't need that. W- was the spider inside um, Yoshida's heart keeping him alive or hurting him? Uh, I think both, to be Brilliant. honest. I, I think she was maintaining his illness so that she could use her ability to remove poisons mm. uh, to make it look like she was helping him. Was she loyal to him, though? She it's was, not really clear at the end. Well, the, and this is part of my issue. You say loyal. I don't honestly think she was ever working for him. I think she was using him for her own ends in order to obtain Wolverine for some reason that we have yet to understand. Well, that's that's what's so terrible about this finale because everyone's motivation just goes out the window in favour of action. Mm. Yeah. I, I wanted to know what Viper wanted. Wolverine juice. Wolverine juice is obvious, but that's what... Yoshida wanted. If she's just his lackey, 
she doesn't act like it. She acts way too much like she's having fun. She gloats like crazy. I mean, I, I can understand if basically if Hydra and the Yoshida Corporation were joining forces, that would make sense. But maybe they didn't have the... Maybe they were going to mention Hydra and then decided that they couldn't at the last minute because of licensing. Possibly. Or maybe not. I don't know. What I do know is um, that the original screenwriter had the script taken away from him and they did stuff to it. Mm. And he said he was almost afraid to go and see the final film and that after he'd seen it, a lot of it was much the same. I'm going to go ahead and suggest... They inserted the last half hour because... They, they inserted the last half hour because it didn't feel like X-Men enough. Oh, God. Should we be grateful that Wolverine doesn't have to fight a polar bear? Well, technically he does. He fights a grizzly bear and, and he has to wind. deal with a small robot spider. Oh, my God! It's that guy! It's him! John, John Peterson. Peterson. No, John Peters. Uh, could maybe he fight a, a robot spider that's in his own heart? Okay, why go fuck yourself doesn't work twice. It worked the first time because it was unexpected. We didn't expect to see Wolverine. We certainly didn't expect that to be the only thing he said. And it was in the middle of a comedy montage. That worked perfectly then. For him to come out with, go fuck yourself, pretty boy... In the middle of a ninja fight, when he's actually this man on fire still trying to get back Mariko, it's just coarse, it's artless, it's tactless, it's not funny, it's out of the context that it was originally funny, and it, the worst of all, it seems like they're trying to make this his I'll be back. This can't be his I'll be back. Because then it becomes I'm the juggernaut bitch. So yeah, that's why Go Fuck Yourself should not be... Uh, if he says it in uh, Days of Future Past, I'm going to start a movement to get Wolverine to stop saying it. <laughs> Seriously, that can't be Wolverine's thing. I'm Wolverine. Go fuck yourself. do not need is catchphrases. Well, they, they've got them. My ruby quartz visor holds in my eye beams. Shut up, Scott! This psychic knife is the sum totality of my psychic power. And the best I am at what I do. And what I do isn't pretty. That's his I'll be back. He's got one. It's not a good one. You only say it with your tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. Or you flip it around and it becomes I'm the best I am at what I do. And what I do is so terribly, terribly pretty. I love that bit. <laughs> okay. I uh, do back, too. <laughs> back to Viper. She gets shot with an arrow in the heart, and then she sheds her skin, and then she's fine. No. If you shoot a snake with an arrow in wherever the fuck its heart is, it wouldn't shed its skin and then be fine. It would be dead. The skin is shed because it undergoes scarring, and it undergoes uh, wear and tear, and it needs to renew itself. But being shot in the heart isn't scarring. She doesn't have that healing factor. At least I don't think she does. Anybody? And although she has mentioned that she is immune to poisons, I don't think she's immune to bleeding to death. Yeah. 
So anyway, the, um, the, the, the fight with her and Yukio then becomes this very tedious, she's trying to spit at Yukio thing. But then somehow redeems itself because that Yukio is such a, an incredibly uh, acrobatic fighter. And that bit with the lift and she gets her twined around her neck and goes up. And then when the weight hits her in the head, I would imagine everyone in the audience would go like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and go, Oh, you couldn't have got that into a PG 13 a while back. Mm. Yeah. Also, that's a fine point, actually. It hadn't occurred to me at the time. Uh, if she is this mastermind string puller, she wouldn't have been dispatched quite so unceremoniously. No, she's a henchman. She's just Lady Deathstrike, but she gloats. That's why Lady Deathstrike will always be so much scarier. She never said anything. And that's not because she's a woman. And that's nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. It's the fact that she's a henchman. And being like Darth Maul... Ultimately, I don't know, actually, because Darth Maul could have been far more into... Ah, fuck it. It does seem wrong that Madame Hydra is both a lackey and dispatched so easily. Hail Hydra. No excuse for bad writing. Here is the tiered system. Good writing, saying nothing, and at the very bottom, saying stupid lines. (laughs) Sabretooth looked dumb, but until he actually spoke... We didn't know for a fact. (laughs) Scream for me. The silver slash adamantium slash destroyer slash iron samurai. Hey. I mean, not in and of itself a bad thing. It's kind of cool to see Wolverine going up against something big and scary uh, and something which looks like it comes out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and something which looks like a Gundam and something which looks like the Mark II and something which looks like the Destroyer and something which looks like the Ironmonger. And something which just looks like a giant badass thing, which he can't simply cut through because it's made of adamantium. But But it does put you in a position where you've got Wolverine going up against somebody who should essentially be an Iron Man villain. It looks like someone is just playing consequences with the script. (laughs) Again, I didn't actually have that much of a problem with this, but because Wolverine picks up the great big sword, there's something about you've got to superheat adamantium, then it can cut through adamantium. Which I suppose makes more sense than an adamantium bullet that goes through adamantium. Which, by the way, shouldn't he have given that adamantium bullet to Agent Zero? You know the guy he sent off with a sniper rifle to kill Wolverine? Yeah. He's like, right, okay, off you go. And I probably should have told you about this bullet that I'm about to go and show this guy. Yep. Which doesn't make any sense. The same way as the superheated blade doesn't make any sense. Because we already know that once adamantium is set, you can't remelt it. And uh, that's how a heated blade would work. That does. That does break those rules. Yes, it does. Maybe um, science. Science what science has in the history forwards. of ever has <laughs> science- been able to do something which is physically impossible? Well, well j- science? J- j- the Japanese, you, they've got special science. <laughs> Maybe it was like a right. <clears throat> adamantium yeah. alloy, which can be heated and then I don't know. Either right. way. I when would it- accept vibrates the adamantium at such a high frequency that the molecules separate. Yeah, okay, I'm fine with that. When it comes down to it, they just want Logan Juice. Exactly the same as X-Men Origins Wolverine. That's why this falls down. And also, it makes absolutely zero sense that this method would do what it appears to do, right? It's bone marrow extraction. That is basically what they're doing. I can, I can grasp the idea that extracting 
bone marrow from Wolverine and inserting it into someone else, which is one of the methods of treating cancer anyway, at least certain types of cancer, would imbue that person with a degree of healing factor. But the idea that doing that would remove the healing factor from Wolverine is nuts because his healing factor is not in his bone marrow. We know this guy can be reduced to a skeleton yeah. with a single cell remaining on him. It's in his friggin' DNA. You cannot extract someone's DNA by taking out their bone marrow. And when the healing factor starts to take effect and he actually not only heals but gets young again, suddenly breaking that connection, he goes all old again. And it's like, oh, it didn't work because you oh, have yeah, to so, be... Yeah. You had to have all of it. So not only does it have to be extracting his bone marrow, it has to be all of it, which would not make Logan mortal. It would just kill him. Yeah. If that's... he was not a mutant with super healing factor, which, by the way, he is. <laughs> Your plot is bollocks. Please remove it from my screen. <laughs> <laughs> That put somebody make a digital gonzo meme for that. Your plot is bollocks. Please remove it from my screen. Thank you. And uh, and yeah, that also dispenses with the whole idea of you know we can we can swap over and you know you can lead a normal life. If they why didn't they just get Wolverine on the table and say what we're going to do, well, uh, uh, Logan, is suck out your. Uh, well, some of you, we we're going to extract some of your bone marrow with a superheated adamantium needle, and we're going to inject that into Lord Yoshida while he's still alive. See if that works. Why didn't they just at least try Experiment that? Experiment first. He was see willing. If it didn't get you anywhere? Oh, and something else. He just said yes. Well. Something else is just. Did he say yes? If, uh, he was no. thinking about it, but then uh, Shink, uh, Yoshida died suddenly, but didn't die. He didn't actually die. No. He pretended to die because it was part of the plan. If Wolverine doesn't have his healing factor anymore, he is going to die a horrible, painful death of adamantium poisoning. Yeah, you've got to take out the adamantium skeleton as well. Preferably first. <laughs> Whatever way round they do this, mess. Well, okay, right. Here's how you Sending could Sending him home it. in a can. Magneto turns up, extracts the adamantium, leaves Wolverine just a mess. They give him a few days to heal. He heals up. They extract the healing bone marrow, inject it into Lord uh, Yoshida. He suddenly goes all young, and then because of movie magic, stays young. They don't have to be connected at the hip by drill bits. And then Wolverine is free to... Nothing, because he's got loads of bone marrow left, or he dies on the operating table. That's it. You either suck out all the bone marrow, and then he dies, or not. That is literally the extent of the plan. It's bollocks. Remove it from our screen. <clears throat> I don't know quite how they could have ended this one properly. Maybe had an actual surgical procedure that, that were, it was, it, it was, that Wolverine... There's no way. There's no physical way they can make this work. Here's how it actually should have played out. Um, he injects it into the Yoshida. Yoshida gets younger and heals. And Wolverine heals as well. And she, Yoshida says, okay, it worked for me. I'm now going to, I now have your Logan juice in me. But we were kind of experimental on the whole, um, whether it would actually affect you and whether this would, um, 
actually kill you. Looks like it hasn't. I'm sorry. That's okay. And then it finishes. No great big fight at the end required. Although he could actually have fought um, Shingen as Silver Samurai. Keep the honourable man honourable. Of course, then anyway. the rest of the world is hunting Logan down because he's the cure for cancer. Yeah, they will always hunt you because you can cure all diseases. Okay, before we get started, do you have any questions? Nope, we're just really excited. Yeah, we've read all the literature, we know all the risks. We still want mutant powers. Yeah, we've been saving up for this for years. Yeah, $50,000 a piece. Here you go. One check. Wow. Oh, wow. Mutant powers. It's finally happening, bro. No. Okay. Um, everything seems to be in order, and we're just going to get... Oh, um... This is embarrassing. What? What's wrong? Well, for the mutant power you wanted planted, you wrote Wolverine. I'm afraid Wolverine isn't a mutant power at all. It's two mutant powers. Adamantium Claws... And mutant healing. For that procedure, I would have to charge you $100,000 a piece. But that's all the money we have. I sold my house. Okay, um, well that doesn't need to be a problem. You can choose which power you want. Adamantium claws or mutant healing. Adamantium claws or mutant healing. Adamantium claws or mutant healing. So, they're both good. We'll take the claws. Why did we take the claws? Why did we do this? There's so much blood. Every time they come out, they cut my hands again. Why didn't we get the mutant healing? Why won't they go back in? Make it stop. You have to be calm or they won't go in. I hate blood. I can't calm down. Well, you have to be calm. I know that. Oh, thank God. Anyway, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Uh, it's a good film while it lasts. In fact, it's one of the best of the X-Men films. I'd actually place it at this point, because I've seen X2 so many times, I'd place it a little bit higher than X2 and below first class. And you could almost put it in the same uh, category as first class with a pair of scissors. Mm, there needs to be a very cunning pair of scissors. So yeah, Mario... Oh, fuck God about this. Mariko and Yukio save the day in really impressive fashion. You know, Logan's down and all he really has to do is provide the final six claws. His bone claws are out and boom. And he says, you brought me here to say goodbye. Sayonara. And it's like, it's like from the last Boy Scout or something. It's... Uh, again, it's like with Batman and Robin. If you're going to reference that kind of crappy 80s movie where it's all about posturing and, you know, smacking him with a surfboard and saying, surf's up, pal. Or, you know, distracting him with a cuddly monkey and then hitting him with a uh, peace lily and saying, playtime's over. Stan Marsh? More like Stan, Stan Darsh. Darsh. Yeah, the sayonara bit. Oh, it, it's, it really does feel like James Mangold was tapped on the shoulder for the last quarter of this film someone hit him on the head with a japanese piece and said playtime's over and then they uh, let uh, back in the guy who directed the end of uh, x-men origins wolverine 
who also wasn't Gavin Hood because the rest of the films felt different to that as well. Who who films these final bits? Because it doesn't seem to be Satan. That's who. Anyway. Oh, God. Let's rescue this one by talking about who Jean really is. Because if we ignore the shit with the Silver Samurai and the gloating, so much gloating, we made you extend your claws. That's what we wanted. Um, who is Jean? What's your theory? Right. My theory is <clears throat> Jean has basically come to embody uh, an element of... Logan's psyche. To start off with, she seems to be almost his anima. Um, she's his reason to keep going. Um, she's also somebody who he externalizes in order to be able to voice his fears and, and talk things through and um, sort of have that feeling that you're sharing those things with someone else who will feed them back to you and give you a different perspective when you're in a position where you have no other person who can do that for you. Gradually, as her exchanges with him become more... Aggressive is not quite the right word, but she seems to be angry about what he's done even if she's not directly angry with him and it becomes more and more apparent that she is uh, his self-doubt basically um, she keeps coming back to this idea of uh, you know I'm here because you put me here you did this you want to be dead you want to be with me come and be with me she's that siren song of his wanting to give up and his exhaustion and his sense of I can't do this anymore and eventually he is able to overcome that by finding the reason why he did that and like I said about the, the scene with the bear we know from the very beginning of the film he did the right thing and he knows deep down that he did the right thing he just has to find it so he uses Gene as a face for all of the people that he's killed and feels guilty about but rationalise it to himself at the end of if I didn't do it they would have hurt more people it's less I had to be the executioner in this stage. Yes, it's less of a rationalisation than it is a realisation, because I think a rationalisation is when you know there's no justification for what yeah. you've done, you're trying to find an excuse for why it's not that bad. Rationalisations are the things that in the hero's journey tend to fall apart. and um, They're more for the villain's journey. They so, rationalise, they're doing yeah. something terrible, and uh, but they had to for the greater good. Yeah, apologies, I, I forgot the uh, literary... There's a lot of hot fuzz in this. <laughs> the literary implications of hero's journey are very specific, and that wasn't what I meant. Um, well, uh, you say realization it's something he knows i'm the best i am at what i do and what i do isn't very nice that's the summation of i'm the executioner that they have to employ when no one else is able to do it absolutely but like i said it, he knows it that's this is what i mean about a realization there are things that come to light that he he doesn't learn anything he doesn't already know it's taking away the layers of scar tissue, if you like, between here's what I know about why I did it and on some level 
I shouldn't have done it, irrespective of the reasons why. And he has to work through all of that. And um, uh, the, the thing about his memories starting to resurface, that is a healing of a far greater depth than he has been able to undergo so far. And I think the reason for that is, because um, we talked about the idea that if we disregard the whole adamantium bullet memory loss thing, um, we've talked about the idea that uh, his very painful memories and his trauma are scarred over by his healing factor. And, and they prevent him from remembering those things because it's it's too damaging and he heals too quickly. So he doesn't have time to process all of those things before scar tissue is formed. But that's when he's existing in a state where he's in fight after fight after fight. He is involved in death after death after death. There isn't time. What he needs to heal properly is a period of peace. And that is something that he very, very rarely gets. And that, if if there's anything that um, reflects the idea of Mariko being... Uh, as, as close as he's going to get for now to a soulmate, which he obviously was intended to be in the comic and is much less so in this, um, that despite the fact that they are together for an extremely short period of time, the depth of peace that he feels while he's with her and the fact that his healing factor is suppressed as well, which means that his brain, his physical brain, has probably got an opportunity to do proper slow time healing in a way that it doesn't normally have. And for the first time in his life, he has that that possibility. Um, And I think all of those pieces come together to, to bring him to that place where all of that scarring, all of that um, layer on layer on layer of self-doubt, he is actually able to um, to peel away and be able to say, you know, this this thing that happened was very, very terrible, but it had to be done. And yeah. that's that's what I do. That's my my role in this world, if you like. So to go back briefly to what I said I would scissor out of this film, I managed to work out that it boils down to two things, and they're they're just recurring themes, um, and they really only seem to happen at this last quarter, and that's unreality and gloating. Gloating that we've already gone into. Viper, if she hadn't been speaking and gloating, actually would have been quite impressive as a uh, a silent uh, antagonist. Um, and then when it would actually almost have been better had um, Yoshida maintained a somber determination to extract what he needed from Logan without gloating at him, but instead he does and starts ranting about what he must have. And uh, the, you know, the, the only life worth speaking of is one that just doesn't end. Brilliant. So no life that's ever been mentioned before. It, that, that's a shit line and it's a shit sentiment and it makes him a madman. Um, so yeah, get rid of all the gloating and suddenly you've got a much better film and also the unreality most of the film, despite the fact that Tokyo feels like a fantasy place feels very grounded you start off in um, the middle of World War 2 which feels like reality and history and that makes it feel uh, impactful and real and visceral and then you cut to the uh, Canadian Wilderness, and that feels real. And then you cut to Tokyo, which again feels very real, even though there is that 
sense of uh, uh, almost delirium that comes with watching Lost in Translation and seeing Tokyo when you're that jet-lagged. Tokyo feels real and Wolverine feels like he's a part of it, even if he is a visitor. You put him in a fucking laboratory at the end where they're doing X, Y, Z to get the thing in the special suit and extract the Wolverine juice and you you shit it all down the toilet because you're suddenly, you're back to the, the Weapon X program and you're back to the Deadpool program and you're back to all of that crap in the earlier X-Men films, which it didn't need and actually drag this series down. Take it back to if not real or reality, or even a state of hyper-reality, a reality that you can see these characters existing in without it being overly, obviously, lazy action film tropes. Finally, it ends really quite well, the uh, the uh, airport scene. And uh, again, you get the, it reaffirms that Yukio and uh, Mariko were major characters and that they'd gone on a journey throughout this film and it wasn't just about Wolverine. And... Yukio stays with him, citing that he needs a bodyguard. He doesn't need a bodyguard. That's the one thing he doesn't need. He's fine. No one's going to hurt him. He needs somebody to relate to. A friend. He needs a mind guard. He needs a kindred spirit and somebody that will keep him company. That is exactly what he needs. I love that. He needs a Robin. Let's face it, to stop him from straying down the dark path for too long and too far. I think, yeah, her role will be not to be his bodyguard in the sense that she's protecting him from other people, but in the sense that she's protecting him from himself. She will stop him from running into those hopeless fights. Yeah. Because he has nothing to live for. Because he needs to, ultimately, he can take care of himself by just existing. He needs to take care of her. So, technically, that father-daughter thing does persist. Mm-hmm. It's a nice parallel with uh, X-23. X-23, that's yeah. what I was just thinking, yeah. And you get two little Easter eggs. One's a deleted um, alternate ending where she gives him a box and says, open it on the plane. <laughs> and it's the Wolverine mask from the comics. You know, nicely rendered. I think Weta had a, at least Weta Digital had a hand in this, so it looks awesome. But they obviously got rid of it because they're like, we're not going to give him that for the next film. That's crazy. Why would we bait people with that and then switch it out? It's it's nice that it exists, but um, I don't see that costume with the full head mask really working. I kind of like the idea of being able to see Wolverine's face. Uh, and Hugh Jackman is extremely expressive, so keep that. You don't need to give him a cowl. Um, and the other one is, of course, the link to uh, Days of Future Past. So anyway, yeah, uh, I will reiterate... Uh, the Wolverine surprised the hell out of me by actually being one of the best X-Men films and actually serving as a comic book hero, if not superhero movie, in its own right. Something which, frankly, none of the other ones have managed. Even X-Men First Class requires the previous X-Men films to give it that context. But as almost always, little patchy on the landing. Try to keep those wheels down. We'll be back next week with Days of Future Past. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. We're the best we are at what we do, and what we do... ...is so terribly, terribly pretty.
you. Me? Sorry to interrupt. What are you? A chemist. Nihilist. Capitalist. Oh, that must be exhausting. 